Hi, everyone. Uh, so, yeah, so um, first of all, I wanted to thank uh, Dale uh, for, uh, for um, recommending me as being a speaker here uh, in this concentration of ideas and, and projects and debates and all around coffee. I think it's a treat for me. It's, uh, it's a great thing. So my name is Laurent Richet, as you said. Uh, we work at Restaurant Side Baines in Nottingham. Uh, we are two Michigan restaurants. Uh, and obviously, I'm a master sommelier and head sommelier, uh, part of the wine and uh, coffee programs. Um, I must say that um, although I love coffee and I think we give it the uh, respect it deserves at a restaurant, um, I'm no coffee barista. So I had to look at many videos on the internet to understand what you guys are doing, how do you understand your coffee, how far you go. And um, I must say I was really impressed and uh, I didn't expect to see that, <laughs> that much going on. And uh, I was quite overwhelmed, but I was, I'm really happy to be here and be part of, uh, of this in my, in my side, if I may say. Uh, I want to also thank Jen uh, Rigolo because she really helped me a lot in putting this together. I'm not that technical. Um, I just taste and drink stuff. <coughs> but, um, but yeah, so her insight and technical skills were very, very helpful to me. Okay, so my presentation um, will be based on the, what the sommelier uh, is in the wine industry. So how do I think that it may relate to coffee? And also a bit about my experience, how I got to where I am now. Uh, how hard it was or not, uh, and how I think that all of that, for me, come together into the restaurant uh, in order of my wine list and my coffee menu. Um, so, um, first the evolution of wine and sommelier in the world. Um, so, uh, much has been done, I think, by now, between coffee and wine. Um, but for me, um, has uh, coffee taken it far enough yet? Um, its history is much, pretty much as old as for grapes, but uh, yet it is still taken as an everyday beverage. Uh, rather than being a, a great cup of an amazing coffee uh, produced uh, using a specific varietal grown by a great farmer somewhere in the world that's using a specific method in processing his coffee. So that's why it tastes like this. Why not? Where have we been? Um, I think that if we sort of look at how uh, wine got to where it is today, maybe we could relate uh, and uh, see how come maybe wine and coffee are in two different positions in that understanding. Uh, so back in the uh, 1950s, um, the UK, uh, the, some guilds of wine in the UK, pretty much everything started in the UK very much. Um, some guilds of wine created what is called the Master of Wine Qualification, which is something very, very uh, prestigious to have. And there are about 350 people nowadays in the world to have this uh, title. Um, and uh, those qualified in that sort of Master, uh, master uh, of Wine are pretty much the... Um, the um, people that are here to give the knowledge and understanding of wine to wine buyers at the time. But it was very much focused on Europe and mainly France and maybe Italy and Spain. Um, but there was a need to have something done about it, to have people who have the understanding uh, and could represent, represent it with a knowledge uh, at the table to a restaurant, uh, to a guest and make it part of an actual uh, um, experience rather than a commodity. So then came in the 60s the uh, Master Sommelier qualification, which um, represents about 230 people now. And the Master Sommelier is pretty much um, a representative, knowledgeable person in the restaurant that can really advise you on a great bottle of wine and pretty much help your experience to be lifted to a different level at the restaurant. Um, but yet, again, at that time, was still very much focused on European wines in a way. So. The thing is that uh, wine and um, sommelier is kind of like a very natural background for, for French people, in a way. And they sort of like implemented that in the school back in the 70s already by adding an extra year of education in the catering schools. 
um, for wine as a sommelier. And I was really lucky to study in one of them, uh, first created back in the 70s um, in, the, in the Loire Valley. And unfortunately, they don't do that sommelier anymore, which I'm kind of, kind of sad about it. Uh, but anyway, um, the... Um, sorry, I got lost. <laughs> um, the... Um, after this, sort of came something very important in the wine industry, which is happening, which happened in 1976, and that's what we call the uh, Judgment of Paris. So that's something that really revolutionized the wine world for us. It really opened up what's happened in the world elsewhere, and not just France or Spain or Italy, for example, because that was just free around and local, and France was the most iconic country for it. So everything happened with somebody called Mr. Spurrier. So Spirier is somebody that um, is an Englishman, really iconic now because he's a wine writer and the chairman of Decanter. But he, um, he had his own wine shop in Paris. And um, as he was having some guests coming in, buying some wine, and talking about the experience on traveling the world and tasting wines around the world, and saying, oh, they have some great wines over there. I tested this, it's nice, you should try one day. So he said, okay, enough of just being told about it. Let's go and find out. So he, out of all countries, he went to America, went to California, and, um, and went around the region, tasted some wines, and realized that, in fact, um, the wines were great. And maybe they could compare with Bordeaux or Burgundy, which are the most iconic appellation in France at the time. Uh, still are now. And um, so what he thought is to actually bring some bottles back to France, and maybe try and have it blind tasted between French and American, and see what could happen. So he actually, because of his notoriety at the time, he, uh, he was actually able to get some of the top producers in Bordeaux, as well as in Burgundy, to sit down together with journalists and taste their own wine against the American blind. And as you can guess what happened, they actually rated the American wines better than their own. So as you can imagine, massive scandal, thinking this is rubbish, this is not possible. They mixed the bottles around. But obviously they could not erase it because you see there was already, there was the journalist here that recorded everything, so they couldn't hide it anymore. So they were in a shit. Um, <coughs> and that's my own country. <laughs> um, but yeah, but suddenly the whole um, experience of understanding that there was more going on in the world really opened up the eye to winemakers, sommeliers, trying to say, okay, there's more going on. So winemakers starting to fly in other countries, trying to produce their wine, lifting up the knowledge of wine in Chile, Argentina, and so on. And, and actually those, those, uh, those bottles were um, are kept in America in the Smithsonian uh, Museum. So you can see those bottles still if you want to. Um, this was actually very well illustrated also in another movie. Uh, called Bottle Shark, sort of ex explain exactly that sort of like experience that happened. Um, obviously, it's a movie, so they have to make it a little bit uh, love story and stuff. But beside that, it's actually quite interesting to watch uh, for that aspect. So yeah, so that opened up the fact that you could have wines in North America, South America, Argentina, Australia, and then New Zealand. Now, New Zealand is very iconic with its Marlboro Sauvignons. Like everybody drinks that now. Sancerre is gone. <laughs> Pretty much. No, but this is true. It's that really opened up the thing. And that was already back in the 70s. That's why it's all changed. Um, so the, the thing is that in that uh, similar time, there was a movement going on into um, the gastronomic side of the kitchen, in a way, where some um, French chef would go to, Fr to England and bring that sort of uh, background understanding of gastronomy into the English table. And one of the most famous uh, examples would be the Rue Brothers. I'm sure you've seen those people before on TV. They did a lot of shows, cooking shows. Um, and they're pretty much, um, it's because of people like them, that England, or the UK in general, are some of the best food and chefs in the world, pretty much. And, um, and with that, the sommelier came with them, you know, because there was something new to do. 
more knowledge to get. And the Root Brothers would sort of push that as well because they would have teams like that sort of background of restaurants holding by having team like um, brigades of chefs in the kitchen and in the restaurant with head waiters, waiters and sommeliers. So suddenly the whole thing came up very strongly and that evolution of gastronomy was getting to a different level. Uh, with that, the level of knowledge in wine got bigger and stronger. Uh, more people passing the Master of Wine qualification, becoming sort of like the eye of the sommelier and, um, and uh, I called uh, wine lovers in the world, bringing like, knowledge back from their trips to the countries and regions and writing it in books and sort of columns in magazine, newspaper. And then with that, more um, having sort of like those kind of people and those kind of qualification really helped us to lift the, uh, the wine industry in, in unity. We sort of, sort of divided the jobs in who does what. So the master of wine would go in the field and report from what they found back writing in books. And then the master sommelier would be sort of like reading from this and going back with a bit of a more understanding sort of knowledge and give it back to the guests and give them that experience to the table. <coughs> the, um, with that, obviously, some more things happen, more sommelier or want to be some sommelier would go through the path of master sommelier to become sort of the icon of the industry in restaurants and, and specialized shops. And then you have to, after competitions that came around, then that thrived even more the thirst of knowing more, wanting to be better. And so all of that really raised everything to a different level. And we even have another level of, um, of examination called now WACT, uh, which is sort of like a, a mini master of wine, really. So just make you aware of how the wines work. Um, because we have that sort of understanding in our culture of wine, we can have those set qualifications um, and to reflect all those information. But the thing is that it's always evolving, so we have to keep reading and keep on top of it. There's always new regions or new appellation or even new cuvées. Like so what we would call a cuvée is like a, a producer that decides that one corner of his vineyard, for some reason, is more sheltered by trees. He's got a slightly different soil type, and for some reason, it's ripening differently. So then he decides to harvest it differently and make a different cuvee out of it and name it differently. So that's pretty much that, that's something we sort of, we've like big producers, that those are names we need to know pretty much. It's part of a culture we have to have. So now, how how could thing that maybe could reflect in the coffee world? Um, I assume that for me, the um, it has been kept to the sort of espresso, cappuccino, cappuccino coffee for a very long time. In, uh, with trials of trying new things in order to promote it, but somehow stay to the community level. Um, um, but then, why really? Well, should we try to, to work in defining the difference between the countries, the region, uh, even the varietals? I think uh, Jonah Alm in Prague sort of touched that a little bit by saying, uh, how, um, how can we extract the most of a coffee bean in order to uh, distinguish its difference? And I think that's, uh, that's a great point. Um, there's these countries, these countries and farmers that are producing great wine or great coffee. Uh, sorry, great coffee nowadays uh, would be now maybe at a different level of of living if uh, they would have had the same chance as uh, in a similar time schedule to our winemakers to become the star of their own, really. And maybe would have now barista in all restaurants uh, serving that extra bit of experience to the guest and pushing it to another level and bring that sort of knowledge and experience and professionalism. It would be amazing. It may seem a bit sort of like out of place to think that we could have a barista in a restaurant uh, serving that coffee to the extra level, to the guest. But at the same time, it's just, I think, a matter of understanding or education from everybody. Just thinking that if you think that all what we do now would have happened 50 years ago, like for the, the um, judgment of Paris, 
Um, it would almost seem normal now to have a barista in a restaurant that the guest will go to after dinner according to what he's eaten or what he feels like or what he likes to have and ask the barista, oh, what coffee could I drink now? That'd be amazing. I think that would be actually amazing. I would love that. <laughs> um, but the thing is that the, um, the, thing are, the thing is that the movement of uh, getting better, having a better understanding and awareness um, only started recently, I think, about 10 years ago, maybe. Um, having said that, I think the coffee scene has progressed dramatically in a way that they are serving great coffee at fast pace in, like, for example, places like Starbucks or Costa Coffee. But instead of promoting a country, a region, or a, a farmer or coffee bean, they just went by um, flavoring coffee or adding different level of milk in it, which for me makes them more the cocktail place of coffee rather than promoting a coffee bean and the way it's been processed, which I think that would be more interesting uh, and would bring a, a better awareness, really, about what coffee is all about. Um, but don't get me wrong, I think for what they've achieved is, for me, is tremendous because I think that nowadays we must have like, more people drinking more coffee than ever before, and that effort is fantastic. But I think maybe it needs to be refocused on promoting the coffee and how it's processed and why and why it would taste different. Um, but I think it's changing though, but it's slightly late, late in the move. From my perspective, I think coffee uh, is being treated um, as a commodity um, but just that he made more fun by those attributes. Uh, one is not really made for fun, it's here to be part of a, an experience uh, of taste, of flavor, of, uh, of an experience. Uh, the, um, somebody, uh, Rick Reinhardt, in the record symposium in 2014, I think, sort of touched that point very well by explaining his experience with a bottle of wine. Um, and, uh, and I think that, that it's just so simple that just that little experience could make a difference. Um, the thing that we have in wine, maybe, that could be in that sort of idea of being cocktail thingy would be the sparkling wines. Because the sparkling wine had a bit of an issue on sale for a while, so they had to sort of reintroduce themselves and they thought, okay, what relates to sparkling wine? And usually it's like parties or celebration, victories, so they went that way and sort of worked very well. But it worked so well that it sort of went against the image of champagne, which had to reintroduce themselves as being food friendly rather than the party, party jolly wings. Uh, unless you want to spend more money, of course. Uh, I must say that from my perspective, the, the people who were responsible of creating changes in the wine world didn't get very much helpful about the wine, the, the coffee world. And France would be a point where they've been helping coffee by expanding the coffee beans within countries and in the world, but they didn't do much about it more after this. And no, I think the Italians, because they went on for their ristrettos, but and coffee and all, but they haven't went to the extra mile to say, okay, I like this research though because it's made this way. I don't know, maybe we should push that further. Um, but the thing, the thing is, I'm not saying that nothing's been done. I think, I, I don't know why we haven't have a better awareness yet to make it stronger. Um, now a bit more about, um, about my experience, how I get to where I am now, um, the process of Master Sommelier pretty much. So as I said, I'm not a um, coffee barista, um, and uh, I respect them for their knowledge and the hard work they put in, the, in that part of the industry. And I'm really glad to, uh, that we can put it together maybe to a different perspective and consumption and understanding. So as I said, we are a master sommelier. Um, it's an exam that's known to be very difficult, and it really is. Uh, two weeks ago, we had, um, we had 29 candidates to try and pass the master sommelier, and nobody passed. So it's, it's quite hard. <laughs> Um, and some didn't, the things that Master Sommelier, you, can have, you have three different parts to pass, and you can, if you pass one, you can keep it, and you have three years to pass the rest, and uh, some of them didn't pass nothing. So it's 
it's kind of bad, really. Um, but it happens. It's, it's hard. And you can have a bad day and suddenly you answer the wrong questions and you don't have, it's quite hard, really. But anyway, the master summary goes into um, four different stages where you go from introductory to master. Um, we've in between a certified and advanced level. Uh, the intro level and advanced come with uh, respectively a three days and five days sort of like tutoring lessons, um, while the certified and master are only exams. So the fact for us of having tutor lesson really helps the student to understand what we're looking for, how they should sort of try and learn their, their skills into the, the, their knowledge, um, and then see how, how far they can go or they should go. But the same thing that when you go to the level of uh, advanced or master sommelier, there's not really uh, the maximum of where you can go. You've got to learn as much as you can, and even more if you can. Even if you can't, you can. You have to. It's not a choice. You've got to learn more as much as you can. There's no, there's no other choice. And you, you don't even know if you learned enough until you passed. And even if you passed, it's not finished. It's just the tip of the iceberg. You've got to learn more. You've got to carry on. You've got to keep reading. You've got to know what's happening. And it's, it's a lot. Uh, anyway. The um, the different levels um, of qualifications sort of uh, are to be passed pretty much as an intro, certified, advanced, and master in that order. Uh, you can have the master, the um, intro and certified passed on the same day. It's possible, where um, if you did very good on your intro, they could say, okay, we give you a shot to the certified. You just spend extra money now, and then you just go for your certified. You may pass it, and suddenly you gain one year of your of your time. Uh, if you've been lucky. Uh, but then when it comes to the advanced and master, it's pretty much, uh, they will tell you if you're ready or if you need a few years more to really get your, your, your understanding of all of it. It takes some time to really realize how wine works, how it's served, all of it. It's a lot of work to understand it. Um, it takes years to really grasp the whole thing. Um, how it is uh, sort of like taken care of uh, money-wise is something you have to um, pay yourself pretty much. So it's down to you, um, always down to sometimes businesses, which is something that's quite well known to see in America. America takes it as almost like uh, an investment part of their staff to have people that can be master sommeliers in their in, in their restaurant. But it's not uh, we don't have the same money in the UK to be able to do that sort of thing, not always anyway. Um, the uh, so the intro level, let's say we can have a bit of a few different questions uh, of what could relate and how they work. So the intro level is pretty much. Uh, really here to guide waiters even, or sommeliers to understand what to look for, where to look for them, and uh, understand uh, the correct way of working in a restaurant. So this is pretty much a set of multiple choice questions uh, that would be of quite random. And then, um, and then you have a little service at the table just to give you a, um, sort of to see how you can handle it at the table. So it's very much to, to get your basic knowledge. So here, a sort of question that would be asked would be like, um, in which region do you find uh, Barolo wine, for example? So you would have a choice of questions, of answers to give, so either from the Loire Valley, the Piedmont, or Napa, or Tuscany. So then you just have to take the right answer, and hopefully you have it right. <coughs> the certified level is pretty much similar, where you also get a set of uh, multiple choice questions. Um, the difference is that you can have a few open questions at the end, and then you get to taste two wines blind, but as a written exam. And then you have another skill, sort of like practical skill at the table, uh, but that involves a bit more of a food and wine pairing and a more knowledge about spirits and cocktails. So here's only a question would be name two different coffee-based liquor. That's one of the questions that could be asked, for example, at the table when you do your practical. 
Um, next level, the, the advanced level, so now we really get to something a bit more difficult now. It's all open questions which are written, so that's kind of still okay. Um, you have a service of three or four different tables, different um, um, levels of question and decanting a bottle of wine, opening a bottle of champagne, do a full wine pairing, tasting one blind and recommend some food with it, uh, how could you sell it better or whatever. Um, and then, then you have a, um, a blind tasting of six wines orally, not written, and you have to do that within 25 minutes. So it's kind of short, it's less than four minutes per wine, but about four minutes per wine, but it's possible. With good training, you can do it. Um, so here, a sort of question would be a sort of name the 16 DOCG of, uh, of Piedmont and give them the main grape varietals. Master level, oh, yeah. Master level. Master level, we go to a different level again where everything is oral, there's no writing. So when it comes to the questionnaire, so it's all open questions, uh, and you start pretty much in front of two judges and they ask questions one after the other. You have one minute to answer the question. If you don't answer it, that's too bad, you can't go back to it. Once you're on the paper, you can go back to the question and read it la again later if you have spare time. But you have no spare time. It's either you know or you don't. And this is it. So sometimes you can fail from just that point. Um, then you still have also the practical tables of different skills and still have six points blind as well. So the um, sort of question, which is not a very difficult question, but it could be a question asked at the master level as well, uh, which also could be asked at the uh, advanced level. Lemberger is a grape grown in Germany. Uh, what could be its name in, uh, or synonym in Austria or Hungary? So just a few ideas of questions that we get asked. Now, um, for mine, um, I've trained very hard. Um, for my sommelier, I started my blind testing maybe six months prior to the exam. And uh, so I invested a lot of, uh, into wines, buying different kind of wines from different parts of the world, uh, invested in two wine fridges, and, uh, and tried to, to do as best as I could. So uh, what I did was to test two wines a day, first to try and work uh, my grid. What I told by, say by working my grid is to try and do the progression in understanding that for me is almost natural to think about it. So I don't even think about it, I just, once I've got it right, I can just then test the wine and still describe it without thinking how to describe it because I know it now. Then when I come to a month prior to the exam, I would test twice six wines a day, in the morning and the evening, in order to first test as much as I could so I get them in my head and I can describe them and it's easy and it's fast, it's fast, it's fast, and work my timing, make sure I get those six wines within 25 minutes, whether they're right or wrong, but at least get the timing right. So you, you, you're used to have a speed into your, 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 your chat, and you can, some are easy to find, you go fast, some are harder, so you can spend a bit more time. So you have to find a way, a balance on how you do it. Uh, and on the last three days, uh, I was lucky to have the last three, uh, those three days off, and um, um, I sort of tried wines in different places, at home, at work, and in, in, a, in a shop like Majestic. That was for me to sort of eliminate my entourage, in such a way that I could be in anywhere and test the wine and tell what is in the glass. That was my goal. That I've got to find out what's in that glass. I've got 25 minutes in my life and I've got to find what those six wines are. So do the job. So yeah, it was, uh, it was great, it was great. Um, great time. There was a lot of wine to finish after. <laughs> but uh, besides that, it was, uh, yeah. So but, but it, uh, th that, that sort of hard work enabled me to to pass a master sommelier, there's four levels. I passed one level each year, so I made it in four years. So it's kind of rare. And because of the fact that I passed my master on the first time, um, I got the, the crew cup for it. 
So it's, it's great. You get a lot of reward from it. But some people take like six, seven years to pass the exam just because they failed the tasting three times. So they have to read the whole thing. And it's not the whole like three or four stages does the master sommelier, but still it's very, very, you have to relearn everything. You have to go back to all your papers. It's so much hard work. That's fair enough. That's what it is. Um, so now we could, uh, the, I guess that for us in a way is kind of like easy when you taste wine because some, some grape varietal, which are similar, like Sauvignon, for example, can taste different from different countries. Like Sancerre from the Loire compared to New Zealand Sauvignon can taste different. So it's kind of easy in a way, you can spot it. But when you get two different grape varietals that taste the same from two different countries, that's where it gets hard because you could have a lovely, sort of very aromatic Torontes in Argentina that tastes the same as the Gewestramina in Alsace in France. And you get very confused and like, okay, which country are we? That varietal tastes like that. I know that's the kind of varietal, but which one is it? And from which country is it? So then it gets difficult. So it's, yeah, it's hard. Um, so I think we could do a quick tasting. So we get the glasses around. There's going to be a glass number one and a glass number two. Okay, it's on purpose. And so don't get confused. There should be three bits on the stem at the bottom. Oh yeah, as much as you can. <laughs> That's the goal. Now but the thing is that what I'm going to try and do is just to go through the um, the, the process of the, the tasting, the blind tasting. With you all. So it's going to be fast and furious because you see I'm taking a lot of time today on my presentation. Look at that, teamwork. So, yes, yeah, so that's, a, that's a grid that we use for the just a certified level. So it's kind of like very simple where you just have to fill up a few boxes. The tasting is written, you have two wines, one white, one red, and you just tick the boxes. Uh, whether what kind of fruit it is, what kind of non-fruit it could be, if there's any stone, if there's any oak in it, you just take the box, you add the fluid failure profile, do a distinction of what is at the end, and there you are. Now, for, for when it comes to the master sommelier level, that's, that's the description I was using. So that to go through all of this, it takes you quite a lot of time, all those details. I need to as well. <laughs> So yeah, so the, in, a, in each glass, we look at the, at the appearance. The appearance on the glass distinguish pretty much the style of the varietal, whether it's young or old as well. Um, the nose, how aromatic it gets, what kind of flavor profile you get from it. The palate, um, what comes across on your palate, how does it come back? Because what's interesting, what's important in the palate is almost the ritual faction you get. What we call ritual faction is the flavor profile that goes from your palate back to your nose. And that's intensify the more flavor profiles. Could I get two glasses as well? Yeah. If possible. Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> Cheers. Okay. So I'm gonna try and do that as quite on the on the speed, speed, speed because we're I'm taking a lot of time here today. Um, so I'm gonna do one at a time, both of the wine at the same time on each of those sections, okay? You ready? So we do number one first and number two second each time. So on glass number one, if you look at the color, the one is clear, it's brilliant, it's got a pale yellow color of medium intensity with slightly green stinges on the outside. Um, it's got sort of like, if you look at the viscosity in the light, it's kind of medium, it's sort of sticking to the glass, doing a bit of legs, but nothing too major. So it's got a medium intensity, a medium viscosity. Uh, the 
glass number two, if you look at it, the glass is clean, uh, the, the one is clear, it's brilliant. It's got a um, slightly darker yellow color compared to the first one. It's got more of like a yellow reflect compared to the green one earlier. Um, and again, uh, no, no effervescence in the glass and the viscosity seems to be somewhat similar, slightly richer. Now on the, on the nose. So on the nose, the one is clean, it's aromatic, seems kind of youthful. You get a lot of like those like uh, fruit character, like uh, Granny Smith apple, some lemon zest, um, a bit of like a grassy note, but nothing too strong, but still there, a bit of nettle maybe, uh, fresh cut grass, and then a lot of mineral character, like crushed tones, very, very classic. And there's no smell that indicates there's any oak in it. So it's very, very refreshing wine. Glass number two. When you smell it, it's a lot more aromatic, it's a lot more pungent, there's a lot more riper fruit, um, it's got more that sort of passion fruity character, uh, still a bit of gooseberry like the first one had, which I didn't mention. Uh, the apple character is still slightly almost golden apple, so you have a bit more ripeness to it, uh, but there's not much about mineral. It seems to be a lot more on the fruit and sort of a herbal, almost uh, asparagusy character or fresh green beans, that sort of character you get into this one. So they have somewhat similarity, but not quite. And again, no. So if you taste it, so do that noise. You can train in your bathroom one day. Under the shower, that's the best time. <laughs> yeah, you can, you can spill as much as you can, it doesn't matter. <laughs> but it's a good way to like wear that sort of like uh, breathing the, the wine in your mouth. That really uh, uh, enables you to get as many, explode all the flavors in your palate. And as you breathe it back out, it goes through your nose, and all those flavors intensify even twice as much as you can get in your nose at the start. So you get a lot of flavor going on. And there's a lot of things you can get from your palate. So first, the flavor profile. So the one is dry, okay? It's got a medium body, it's not feeling too strong. Uh, it's got a very high acidity. It's almost like you just had to bite into a lemon almost. Um, the alcohol is medium, it's not too warm. Uh, it's got a great balance then. The length is medium, medium plus. It's kind of long, but not too long. Uh, obviously, there's no tannin, we're not on the red wine here. Uh, and the fruit profile is pretty much similar to what we had on the palette earlier, so it's very lemon juicy character, sort of Granny Smith apple, um, and again a lot of like a mineral character, it's almost you just had a, a leak onto a stone, you just like the stone like this, and that your tongue is drying a little bit, so it feels like you have a lot of mineral, it's not salty, but a little bit minerally, and uh, again that sort of green character, this, um, that uh, fresh cut grass note, and no oak. Glass to the right, grass to the right, the number two. If you taste it, it's much riper. Again, so the wine is dry, super high in acidity. The, b the body is medium, uh, the alcohol is medium, uh, the balance is good. The length is slightly longer, but not much because it's slightly fruitier. Um, the fruit, again, we have, I said golden apple. I think it's still on the Granny Smith apple. It's got more of a, like a lemon zest, passion fruit. It's got almost a sort of like ripe melon to it, character. Um, and then again, as a non-fruit, we do get a little bit of like green beans in it. Um, and then again, not really much about mineral. I don't get the mineral, it's just fruit. The only thing you have left in your palate is fruit character. And no oak. So as an in initial conclusion, you have very two different wines. You have one that's very mineral, one that's not. One that's very, both are high in acidity. So there are some like relations that are the same and at the same time they're not. So one number one will be North Hemisphere, one number two will be Southern Hemisphere. One number one would be old world, one number two would be new world, okay, as a pre-assessment. Um, they're both in a sort of similar climate where the, 
um, maybe the one, the, the one number one will be a more cooler climate, while the one number two will be more slightly moderate climate because the food is a bit riper. But the acidity is very, very high, so it's not too much. Um, and then it seems to be a single grape varietal, as it seems to be the same, and seems to be quite young, within one or three, three years old. That's your pre-assessment. That's the way to, to get you, okay, where, with all what I thought, what I tasted, what I said, okay, does all of that addition to a result of a grape varietal, and a wine, and a country, and a region. So then, finally, here we have uh, Sauvignon Blanc, uh, one number one uh, coming from uh, France, one number two coming from New Zealand, and as you can imagine, one is Sancerre, and one is Marlborough, Sauvignon. Okay, so it comes quite simple in a way when you understand that, obviously, one same grape varietal from two different countries tastes different. So it's kind of helpful. But now, how, how that could work with coffee? How could you, could you distinguish varieties of coffee the same way. Um, I think that could be something quite interesting to be able to, uh, to assess um, in a way. But at the same time, I know that you, um, you're, you have this different level of roasting that you guys can assess when you taste coffee, how much it's been roasted. Um, but then suddenly, so if you have that, um, if, could you, um, would you be able to find a variety or a country or region or a farmer who makes it by the fact that if you roast the coffee a certain way, depending on its varietal or its country of origin, it distinguishes it as a style, and that's set for that varietal from that country. And suddenly it becomes a lot more easy to uh, sort of distinguish where it's from, what is it, and where it could be or could not be. So suddenly it's you sort of like structure the whole uh, coffee bean uh, country, the same as here we have the luxury to do with wine. Whether it's the same or not, I don't know. But maybe it's a, it's a point we could uh, look into. Now, how it also, also sort of like come into play for me at the restaurant? How do all of this tasting, the knowledge of all of it comes to play to the restaurant? So we try to put everything together in sort of like taste, flavor, experience, uh, quality, freshness, seasonality, pricing, all of this sort of come together. Um, for me, the wine list, I sort of focus on the fact that um, it has to reflect the food within the restaurant. There's no need for me to have wine that don't belong. Uh, I could have what we call a vertical of Latour, uh, super prestigious wine uh, from Bordeaux, and have like what I call vertical is like having maybe five to ten vintages that follow each other. And you have that in those top places in London, for example, which is great. It's great to have that. But for me, it's got no relation to what I'm doing. So why would I have, why would I have this? Nobody would buy it anyway. It's more for sure than anything else most time. Um, so what I do is um, the layout of the, the wine list is simple, but I try to grasp as much information with one read of the wine. So we have uh, the bin number with the price, which is a very tactical way of putting it together. I'll get to this in a second. And then uh, regular information about the wine, uh, the vintage, the name of the varietal and the name of the cuvee, uh, where it's from as a style of wine, type Bianco. And then here sometimes, the, the, I'll talk about the price in a minute. The name of the winery, so something you get on the wine list usually. Then the name of the, the region, the country, and I add the alcohol content, which is not you don't have to do it on the wine list for full bottles. It's mandatory for by the glass. As people, as they have a glass of wine, they have to be aware of how much alcohol they're going to consume. So they can have a glass, two glasses, maybe three, but not really. <laughs> Although they would do it though. And then what I try and do is to emphasize more about, okay, what, the, what experience they're gonna get about this bottle of wine before they even have it. 
test profile, just three, three little words saying, okay, the one is going to come slightly higher than this, sort of salty character, so it must be kind of coastal. Uh, a lot of crushed tones, a lot of mineral character, and a bit of nutty notes, so walnut. So it must have been kept in oak in some ways. So I sort of add that sort of structure we had earlier with acidity, fruit, non-fruit, into dots uh, and of different sizes. So depending on how big the dot is, stronger the flavor or that structure of the wine will be. So suddenly you say, okay, well, I'm going to have a wine that's kind of mineral, not too much fruit. The main thing of the wine is minerality uh, and acidity. So it's going to be very fresh, very wine, very fresh. But it's got a touch of nutty character, so a bit of complexity here somewhere. Then after, the wine list is sort of uh, cut into um, different ways where it goes from mineral to oak in the white wines, and it goes from lighter to more intense into the red wines. So I sort of like section the wine list per style, rather by, rather by than, than countries, which is the most classic way to have a wine list. Usually people are like, oh, like a Sancerre. So you go to the French side, look for the Loire Valley, here the list of Sancerre, there are four or five Sancerres. I don't have Sancerre, sorry. But that's fine, um, because it's too easy to get. It's, it's, it's not fun. Um, so then those are, again, I've, I brought a whole wine list, so you can always have a look at the wine list later just to see how I've put it together. Um, so the sections are here. From each section, you have an idea of kind of taste profile that will come in that section. So the flavor profile of like stone, iodine, unripe pear, citrus oil, clay, sea breeze, those kind of flavor profiles. So then that's how a page would look like. But those two should be at the bottom, so it's one line. So most wine lists would have, maybe, um, 12, 20 wines per page. Mine only have like four or five per page. So my, my wine list looks like it's massive. Give me a second. It's like, it's like a book, <laughs> right? So it looks, it looks massive. But when you, when you think about it, there's only five wines per page. So it's normal that there's that many pages in it. So if I would put it as a regular style of wine list, I would have maybe just 10 pages. And it would look like nothing. So you'd be like, not so impressive anymore. But she's fair enough. But here, the fact of having the, the bin number and the waste part of a section is interesting for me because it sort of helped the guests to try and focus on what style of wine does he like, rather than saying, oh, I like, I like Sancerre, okay, I like Sancerre, cool. Um, oh, I like, uh, like Chassaille Montrachet, cool. But then sometimes they like those wines, they say, oh, can I have the Chassaille Montrachet you have? And, but they don't realize the price of it sometimes. They just they like the wine, they've had it before, it's on the wine list, you can read it. So here, we've gone this page of oak, and you see, okay, the only thing you can see that you can remember or know that it could be interesting would be the French wine. There's only one. So French is good. I'm going to take this one. Now, you didn't realize that maybe the price is not what he thought it would be. So for me, I would say, okay, he said, oh, can I have the Montagny, please? Cool. No problem. So I would point him to the actual bin number. So do you want the actual bin number 71? The reason I would do that is to point the way that there's a price next to it. And by that, he actually acknowledged the fact that there's a difference in price. So here it's not a big difference between the uh, Caricante and the, uh, the Montagny, it's only a few pounds. But if you would have that and Chassaille Morachet, for example, which would be 120 or something, I didn't realize it was that expensive. And certainly by pointing it out without saying the price, he may say, oh, it's a bit rich for me, maybe it's a bit strong, maybe I should have something a bit lighter. So it's, uh, but th this is it, this is the way you, you sort of communicate with the customer, and that's just incredible. So suddenly you say, okay, so what can we do? So it's just one same um, section of wine, it's all about oak. Um, how does it come together? Is there one of them that seems to be similar in the style? So suddenly the Montagny and the, and the, uh, and the, um, and the, uh, sorry, the Sicilian wine have a similar sort of structure here and here. The structure is pretty much similar. So you say, oh, 
this is almost similar one, you could try the other one instead. And suddenly you give them a different experience. They don't think they would have a wine from Italy to start, therefore they were going to have a classic burgundy. And so they did have a different experience altogether. So yeah, it's not bad. So how did I do for my coffee menu? Sort of did the same. Where um, I tried to focus as per countries, and then within the country I put the name of the farmer or the, the farm itself, and tried to put also the name of the, the varietal and um, how it's been processed. The, the fact of the fact I put the process on it, for, I find it very interesting because it opens discussion to the guests where the natural for them doesn't make anything like weird because they would think, oh, maybe it's organic or biodynamic or something, so it's natural. But then what about washed? So you get, I had a guest once who said, okay, what's with the washed thing? Was it dirty before? So you have to sort of explain the reason why it says washed and then why it says natural and the process of the drying of the... So it was very, very cool. I really enjoyed that. So I thought, okay, we, we need to point it out so the guests can see it and talk about it. Maybe there's an open discussion that can be here and you enhance the knowledge for them of what coffee, how coffee is made. So it's good. I mean, for sommelier, it was great. They said, oh, that sommelier is amazing. He knows about coffee as well. <laughs> amazing. So um, it's, uh, the thing is we, um, how we get, how we work that, those those taste profile, because we also put taste profile on under each coffee, so to try and guide, guide the, the guests the same way we do with the wine. So when they have the coffee, they can choose which coffee they prefer, because the taste profile is there. So the way um, we do that is by, um, obviously we get coffee who has been coffee, and the fact that I was talking about seasonality, is that when they, they run out of a coffee, we get a new one. So we don't have to ask for a different one. We get it naturally, which I think is perfect. So it changes the coffee menu all the time. So what happens? We we sort of, we have to taste it. But the thing we like, the fact is that they, they really understand their, their, um, their coffee very well uh, and the way they showcase the farmer and the attachment they have and how the coffee was processed at the farm as well as in their roasting uh, facility. Uh, for us, it's, uh, it's, really, it's a massive in, uh, point for us to understand that. Um, the, uh, we had a few training, obviously, at their coffee facility and Dale was there to, uh, to, to help us with this. It was always very, very good, very informative, very fun as well. But he was always using a vocabulary which was very helpful for us because if it gets too technical, how can we explain it back to the guests? You've got to have something that's easy to explain. So that, that was very, very good. And we always come back from this to the restaurant and we're like fighting to the best coffee after. Best crema or the best uh, frothy milk. And it's, it's great. So certainly we all compete. And that competition, or not competition, but trying to be better, relates as an evolution to the whole team. And certainly when you pray the coffee, whether you did a good drawing or not, you still have a great coffee. And that's, at the end of the day, it's perfect. Um, um, the other thing they have is, is that on their packaging, I'm sure as other coffee roasters may do, is by, sorry, I'm taking much time, aren't I? I'm almost done. <laughs> sorry about that. Um, is uh, the, as much as, as the other details of the name of the country, the farmer and else, and the coffee bean, they also add taste profile and texture of what we expect to get when we grind the coffee and what, when we're gonna brew it. So the thing is that I could use those elements and say, okay, I'm gonna put this on my coffee menu and then I'm done. But at the same time, I'm thinking, okay, the way they taste their coffee or sample their coffee at the roastery compared to how we do it at the restaurant and we're gonna give it to the guests, it's gonna be different. The water is different, the how much coffee we put in the, in the thing, in the fresh press, uh, how hot the water is, I don't know. All those little factors may be different. So it, we owe the guests to give them the fair profile that we think corresponding to what we're going to give them. So for that matter, we, um, we uh, give it a tasting. So each time we have a new coffee, we're gonna put to the menu. We do a fresh press coffee straight away. 
we get all the sommeliers together, we taste it. So it's almost like for us, we taste it, taste it as if we were tasting a wine, where we have to relate acidity, freshness, quality, length, uh, bitterness, fruit, non-fruit, all of that comes to the same play in a way. So you kind of make your way up and try and distinguish something. There's always less fruit than you get in the wine, so it's got a lot, a lot more like nutty flavor and sort of chocolatey character, but you can get more flavor like apricot or back of prunes or whatever, which I think for us talks more and makes it more, um, makes the guests wanting it more because of that, or blueberries because of the natural side. Um, so then, and even sometimes even ask the chef to come and test with us because those guys test food all the time and their palate is incredible. Um, so obviously we serve also coffee using uh, espresso machine, we just don't do only fresh fresh, that'd be too, uh, too simple. Um, and we use a La Special coffee machine and we use one of those like uh, latest sort of a grinder, the Mythos ones, uh, which are usually, usually more used by you guys, uh, baristas. And this is for us for we pretty much to have a better control and accuracy on the coffee we're going to produce at all times. Uh, for our French press coffee, we, uh, we sort of like grind it daily according to what we used. Um, and, um, and we could do it, I mean, we can't really do it fresher than this. Um, and you'd say, oh, once you grinded it and it's been in that tub for like uh, two, three hours or until the next day, the, the coffee is oxidized, so it maybe it's not that great anymore. But really, for me, it's that's the freshest we can do for now uh, compared to a dead grinded coffee in the lovely packaging on the shelf in the supermarket. So I'm still fresher than them. So I'm like, oh, that's I'm still cool. But then the, um, the challenge now for me, for me would be to, okay, should we be able to grind it a la minute each time? Each coffees. So try to get the fresher you can get from that bean, grind it into the, the fresh press, and then straight to the table. And by the time I wrote this, and now, we've reached that point. Because we, we said, okay, we're thinking about it. I thought of it before. Dell has been very kind to guest us a little uh, grinder, and, uh, which is nice because it's not too noisy, so we have a chef's table. Thank you, Steve, as well. Um, to, uh, to, um, so because we have, a chef's, we have a chef's table just there by the coffee machine, so if it gets too noisy, it's a bit annoying for the guest experience. So the noise is great. And suddenly we can, we've achieved it, where all the coffees, if I'm gonna start on Wednesday, to be truthful. <laughs> We're on the process, it's almost there. But I've got to like, um, everything is measured, so I'm gonna have all tubs ready with name of the coffee, um, and then the only thing I have to do is to open the, the tub in the coffee grinder, grind it into the fresh press, water, let it to brew, put your cup together on the tray, press it to the table. So I think we, 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 we've reached the point where, okay, how fresh can you get it now? We've got to roast it at work. <laughs> that's gonna be another country, not me. Not me, that's fine. I'll let, I'll let the chef do it for me. <coughs> but yeah, so um, how are we, are we like setting a standard of uh, quality service for us at the restaurant? We don't know, we just, um, we just I think, um, doing what the best, the, the best job we can uh, offer and deliver in order to get the best coffee we can to the guests, pretty much. Um, and, um, and I would wish that we could see that a bit more often in other restaurants in the world, in that, in that level, in that quality. And um, that would really help, I think, the whole coffee scene to evolve. Because the, the fact of doing like this, really like specific coffee co um, farm and then beans and the process of it, is, as you talked earlier, kind of, kind of niche. To have this in a Starbucks coffee is a bit hard because the queue is fast, got to go fast. It's not gonna talk for like five minutes. Oh, I want this coffee bean, but uh, I'm not sure it tastes like this or not. Uh, I'm not sure if I'm gonna like it. You wanna taste it? No, no, no I don't have the time. Well, here at the restaurant, we, uh, we have the time to 
take the time and talk about it and say, oh, this one is better for you. Like, and the fact of in the fair profile helps also to guide them, oh, I'm going to try this one because it tastes like this. And the thing that some guests actually thought that there was actually chocolate in the coffee. It's like, no, no, it's not that. It's a taste of the coffee. Oh, okay. So it's, it's, it's funny uh, how it comes together and how people don't understand it. But it's, it's great. Um, I think the... Actually, we, at a restaurant, we start off of, uh, of believing in giving the best we can to the guest. And by doing this, it's hard work and it's not much more difficult to our staff. It's just a matter of how we train them and how they believe in it. I, I think somebody said that earlier, I can't remember if it was Matt or somebody else, where it's, uh, it's uh, all about of if you believe it, you can deliver it. It's a matter what it is. Um, and then it, it's very true. Um, I do think that um, a correct training at any workplace could influence the quality of the service and help everybody to, to lift the, uh, the whole scene to a different level. Because serving coffee, a good coffee or a great coffee, is pretty much down to the staff training and not what the paper says how you should do your coffee. You've got to have some people with responsibilities that are here to push it, to make it, okay, you have to do your coffee like this, that's how it's got to be done. You can't deviate, you can't just add more water or more milk or less hot or whatever. That's how it's got to be done if you want to do it to the best. Um, and unfortunately, you don't see that in all places. And some places don't even see that point as being necessary. Because at the end of the day, they just want coffee, give them coffee. But at the same time, it's, that, it's kind of bad because that's the last experience you get at the restaurant. So they, they go in, they get wow, and then they get oh. So what did they go at the end? They go with the bad because that's the last, that's the last thing they will remember. So you've got to be good at all times, non-stop. That's, that's, the, that's the only goal. Uh, but at the same time, it's not, uh, yeah, as I say, it's not down to the staff sometimes because the training is more of the employer that doesn't believe in the fact that it needs to go that far. It's kind of sad, really. Um, we sort of go at restaurant to the extreme in the tools we use um, in order to be the best at what we do and give the best experience back to the guests. But um, maybe we don't have to go that far, maybe. But the, uh, we want to give the best at a guest to, to at all times um, and make sure that it happens at all times. The, it's called the, the expense of all of what we do, the whole machinery and the hard work behind it is, is great and it's not cheap. But at the same time, we believe that um, the experience of the guest has to be from the start to the end, and um, he's got to have such a wow factor that he wants to come back, pretty much. So that's all the maturity is part of that. And uh, that's me done. Wow. That was fantastic. Please take a seat. Um, no, no, I'm glad it was long. I actually wanted it to carry on. Um, I'd got an interesting story to talk about Sat when he first approached me about coffee. Yeah. And he phoned me up and Sat Baines, if you don't know, he, he won one of the dishes in the Great British Menu. He's very well known. And Sat phones me up and I'm like, I was walking past the phone so I picked it up and he said, uh, yeah, you've got to sell me some Jamaican Blue Mountain. I was like, nah, I don't do Jamaican Blue Mountain, mate. Sorry, put the phone down. And he phoned back about 10 seconds later. He says, what do you mean you don't sell Jamaican Blue Mountain? I always told you you've got the best coffee. I said, like, yeah, we have. That's why we don't have any Jamaican Blue Mountain. <laughs> Put the phone down again. <laughs> and he phoned back again. He says, so what are you going to sell me? And it was like, and since then, it's been a great relationship. And uh, yeah, no, I've loved it. And if you haven't been to the restaurant, you have to go. It's amazing. Um, and stop there as well so you can drink all the wonderful wine. Um, I've got a question I want to ask you, like a kind of personal question more than anything. Okay, yeah, so go for it. Like, 
I was in a fantastic restaurant on Wednesday night in Copenhagen, a okay. called Studio, which is some of the okay. Malmo yeah. guys have opened up, and, and it was amazing. But they said, oh, what wine would you like? The sommelier came over, mm -hmm. and I was like, I'll just have the pairing. Yeah. When you hear that, do you go, oh. Or do you just think, oh, I could put my slippers on now and sit and watch the TV for the rest of the night while yeah. they pair? Yeah. Do you like those wine pairing things with, with the dishes that, on that's, the set menu? Yeah, that's the power of a restaurant, yeah. The, the thing is that at a restaurant, we only do tasting menus. We don't do a la carte. So suddenly it's a lot easier to, as a relevance to do wine pairings. Um, and uh, what we try and do as much as possible, because you see we're in England, uh, in the UK, sorry, and uh, we, um, we have the power of get access of wine from everywhere. So I've tried to use that as much as possible into the wine pairing, where uh, to each course I try to have a different country and not try to repeat the same varietal either, because we have the luxury of doing this. And certainly how to find I know a, a Slovenian Sauvignon Blanc, and then finding uh, um, a blend of Risting and, and um, it's called Risting and um, Albarino from Spain, but usually, but in Catalonia, where it's a country that's part of Spain that's very hot, and those are varietals from very cool climates. So what makes it different? And then um, it could be uh, we do at the moment on the sweet wines uh, um, a Chenin Blanc from Thailand. They're like, oh my gosh, Thailand does wine. It's like, yeah. So it's great because you have you you, you have a lot of discussion with the guests and it's a, it's a great interaction. It's incredible. But at the same time, it has to go with the food. You can't just like play and say, oh, I'm gonna try this one. It's gonna be amazing with that food and fair enough. We have the luxury at the restaurant that sat lets us try the food with the wine because he believes in the entire experience to be top class. And for that reason, we can allow ourselves to have different wines to try the food and ensure that okay, that is great. It's gonna be amazing. Uh, um, it's interesting, we, we, I think the, f the coffee or restaurant thing is, a, is something that pops up an awful lot. Uh, and it's great to see that you guys are, are doing such wonderful things with coffee. Uh, is it something you see happening a lot more in the restaurant industry? Do you think like more sommeliers, more uh, restaurateurs are looking at, at their coffee offering or are you one of few? I'm not sure. I've not, I've not heard too much about eating my if I'm honest. And I've heard more about teas than coffees, if it makes sense. Um, and after coffee, the way we do it, if other people do it, it, it might be possible. I'm not aware. We just, we just go on what we think is best and we just do it. We don't wait for anybody. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty much. I remember reading uh, an article with uh, René Redzepe from yeah. uh, Noma. Yeah. And he said that they put coffee on with no milk and sugar. And he said he had more problems serving people coffee with no milk and sugar than he did serving people live ants. He said people, they serve yeah. live ants, they go, okay, and they'd eat them. They go, here's coffee with no milk and sugar, and they go, I'm not drinking that. Yeah. So it's a, there's a big challenge there. For it is a challenge, yeah, definitely. Yeah, because they, that's the thing, like, um, coffee, as I said earlier, is more like a commodity, and they're, they're comfortable drinking it the way they like it. Um, but at the same time, they're not open to try something else because they want to finish on something they know and relax out of it, rather than carry on on the experience and try something new. That's where it's sad. So for us, the, the power of the, the wine pairings, the food, they don't have the choice on the menu. That's what it is. It's a seven-course, ten-course menu. That's what you get. If you don't like it, I'm sorry. But not in a way. We, we do change the courses if you don't like it. It's not a problem. But we can't change the whole menu because they just want to eat uh, chicken. I'm afraid we don't do chicken. So, that, okay, so can I have fish and chips? I'm sorry, we don't do fish and chips. So, that, okay, so what can you do? That is tasting menu. You have to go through a journey of taste. And then, to, then we bring the wine with it. Again, journey of taste with... Uh, varietals and countries and make you travel. So that make people travel in their mouth and sensation and remind them, oh, I tasted like this when I was a kid. 
amazing. And then we bring that with wine and say, oh, I've traveled here, I've traveled there. So usually we try to say, okay, now next, next course we send you to Germany, next course we send you to Spain. So it's, oh, where are we going next? So they're like, oh, they're like that, what is it, what is it? It's amazing, so it's great. So suddenly they come to the coffee time and they look at the coffee menu or beverage menu and they say, okay, oh, there are different coffees. So they start reading and becoming, is part of the experience suddenly. Do you find that people need guiding with the coffee? Are they like asking you the sim same kind of questions with the coffee menu as they would the wine menu? Not as much, no. no. Not because I've got the, the flow profile of the coffee on it, so they just go with what they think they like more as a taste that speaks to them. So suddenly I don't have to speak too much about the farm, unfortunately. I, I would have to, it would be great to bring that in point, but I think somebody touched that, touched that point earlier where it's good to not be too technical or too much into it. They want to finish a dinner and relax on it. And if you start, if they ask for it, then you hammer them with it and it's perfect. And they say, oh, this guy's incredible. But then at the same time, you don't want to impose it either. So it's, it's a fine line. And do you have like a, a personal favorite flavor profile um, in coffee and in wine? Is there something, you know, the, the naturals and the pulp naturals we saw in there and the washed and, and, and wines? What are your personal, your personal um, favorites? I prefer natural to washed, if I may say. I like the fat of funky flavor. Um, and then uh, in wine, uh, um, I don't know, as long as the wine is good, I don't mind what it is. It's got to be good. Good balance, good taste. Uh, if I got to say, if I have one varietal, it would be Riesling. Yeah, I love Riesling, it's incredible. <laughs>